Hi, my name is Daniel. I'm going to be reading the passage for today. Uh, we're not going to be reading the whole thing. So we'll be starting on this side. We're starting with Judges chapter 10, verse 17 to 11, verse 11. And then we'll flip over and then do Judges for chapter 11, verse 29 to the end. Okay. From verse 17. When the Ammonites were called to arms and camped in Gilead, the Israelites assembled and camped at Mizpah. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, Whoever will take the lead in attacking the Ammonites will be head over all who live in Gilead. Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get an inheritance in our family, they said because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. Sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander, so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, Didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to him, Nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites, and you will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered, Suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? The elders of Gilead replied, The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. And he repeated all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. And then the second part is over the page, starting from verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. When Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated twenty towns from Aroa to the vicinity of Mineth, as far as Abel Karamim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of timbrels? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh no, my daughter! You have brought me down, and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised, now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep for my friends, because I will never marry. You may go, he said. And he let her go for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept, because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed, and she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite tradition, that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. Well, uh, you might like to take just a moment to talk to the person next to you and ask them, uh, or maybe tell them yourself, 
Have you ever tried to bargain with God? Go for it. sound all right? Can you hear me yeah. all right from that? Yeah, great. Uh, well, I don't know if you've ever bargained with God. I know that I have tried to. Uh, usually when something like this, dear God, you know that I haven't studied very much <laughs> and exams are coming up and God, I really need to pass these exams and if I do, then I promise I'll read my Bible every day. Uh, that was one of them. The other was, uh, was similar. Um, Dear God, you know that I really like Jane and, you know, Lord, I'm really nervous but I'd really like her to go out with me and, God, if, if like, somehow she could sort of go out with me without me kind of having to ask her or (laughs) anything like that, then I promise that I'll be really regular in my praying. Those were usually my sort of attempts to bargain with God. Uh, I've done it. Uh, There's a good chance that you've done it. But it's worth asking, why do we do it? Why do we try and do it? I think the answer is quite simple, that it's just the normal way of operating, isn't it? That if you want to deal with people, you negotiate, you bargain, you, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. I promise I'll do something for God so that he'll do something for me. And the chapters that we're going to look at today are all about bargaining with God. So if you want to learn about bargaining with God, then you have come to the right place. So the chapters we're looking at today are chapters 10 to 11 from the book of Judges. And uh, just to give you a bit of the background picture to that, Israel have uh, come out of Egypt through the Exodus. They've entered the promised land, so they're now in the land of Canaan, Israel. Um, And... Uh, things should be sort of settling down, but in fact they're not. And what we see throughout, um, throughout Judges is... Sorry, let me get past this. That's the one I want. Um, is we see this cycle going on all the way through it. 
where Israel turns uh, away from the Lord. The Lord hands them over to their enemies. Israel are in distress and they cry out to God. And so the Lord raises up a judge to save them. Uh, Israel has peace for a time over their enemies and then they turn from the Lord and the whole cycle repeats. And this repeats over and over again through judges, each time with a new enemy. So uh, if we go back to this one here, we find that, first of all, uh, there's Othniel fighting the Aramites. Then we've got Ehud against the Moabites. Then we've got Deborah against Jabin, the king of Hazor. Then Gideon, uh, who's fighting against the Midianites. And this week we get to Jephthah, who's battling against the Ammonites. Uh, And in chapter 10, verse 6, you might like to have a look at this on your handout. In chapter 10, verse 6, we read what's going on uh, at this point. So chapter 10, verse 6, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin and Ephraim. Israel was in great distress. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. And so it's the classic judges cycle, right? Um, Israel turns from the Lord. The Lord hands Israel over to their enemies. Israel's in distress and they cry out to the Lord. What comes next? Well, God rescues them, doesn't he? He raises up a judge to save them. Except, no. This time it's different. This time he doesn't do that. Chapter 10, verse 11. The Lord replied, When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you and you cried to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you've chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. See, Israel's uh, tried the usual trick. Oh, Lord, we've sinned. We're terribly sorry. Uh, And it's kind of like, you know, I don't know if your parents ever used this. Please is the magic word. Um, We... You know, if, if you just say please, then people will give stuff to you. But we try not to say that with my daughter because it's not a magic word that compels people to do stuff for you. But that's kind of what Israel are doing here. They're kind of going, oh, Lord, we're terribly sorry, so that God will, you know, do what he always does and raise up a judge and rescue them. How do we know that's what they're doing? How do we know that they're not sincere? Well... Because of what happens next. See, when God tells them that they're on their own, they really freak out. They say, we have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Verse 16. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord. 
and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. See, they cried out to God in verse 10, Oh God, we're sorry, come rescue us. But they still had their gods there with them, their foreign gods. I wonder if you've ever done something like that. You've ever been in a tough spot. Exams are looming and you say, Oh God, I'm so sorry, please rescue me, please save me from these exams and I'll get rid of all those movies that I've torrented. And yet, somehow, as you study, the movies are still there on your laptop and then you get through the exams and they're still there and actually nothing really changed. You never really repented. You were just trying to cut some kind of deal. But God is not stupid. Uh, You can't trick him. You can't manipulate him. All you can do is honestly repent. And eventually that is what Israel do. They turn away from their foreign gods and they serve the Lord. And he could bear Israel's misery no longer. Notice what that's saying. Israel had tried to manipulate the Lord. But they actually didn't need to. He already loved them. He couldn't bear their misery. They just needed to trust him. Finally they do, and the Ammonite army is assembled in Gilead, in part of Israel. And Israel are there too, the Gileadites. But they can't find anyone to take the lead, to help them fight against the Ammonites. And so they start bargaining. Whoever will take the lead in attacking the Ammonites will be head over all who live in Gilead. If someone, anyone, will just come and scratch our back, we'll scratch yours. And then they remember, hey, there is a guy, a mighty warrior, Jephthah. He's a Gileadite. In fact, his father was Gilead. Perfect. Except there is just one little problem. Um, We did kind of run him out of town a few years ago. You know, he... His father is Gilead, but, like, that was... He's like, oh, it's awkward. You know, he's our stepbrother with a prostitute. Oh, last thing we knew, he'd fled to the land of Tob and he'd gathered a gang of scoundrels around him. And it's all kind of a little bit like Israel and God. There's this guy that you really, really need to rescue you from your enemies... And you kind of ran him out of town a few years back. And now you really, really want him back. They need Jephthah. They need a hard man, a tough bastard. Someone who can smash the Ammonites. And so, like they did with God, Israel come crawling back. But Jephthah is not stupid. And he starts bargaining. You hate me, you drive me out, and now you come crawling back to me? Well, yes, uh, yes, I suppose, well, I mean, you could look at it that way. Yes, I suppose we did kind of run you out of town somewhat. And uh, yes, we nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites, and you will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. And Jephthah answered, Suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? The elders of Gilead replied, 
The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. It's kind of like Israel with God, but it does sort of raise the question for you of how sincere are they? Have the Israelites really turned back to Jephthah? Have they genuinely repented? Can Jephthah bear their misery no longer? Do they love him? Does he love them? Or is it more like a business relationship? You scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. At any rate, Jephthah and the Gileadites strike a deal. And so in chapter 11, verse 12, we read that Jephthah sent messengers to the Ammonite king with the question, What do you have against me that you have attacked my country? Verse 13, the king of the Ammonites answered Jephthah's messengers, When Israel came up out of Egypt, they took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, all the way to the Jordan. Now give it back peaceably. The opening statements have been made and the initial negotiating positions are established and now the bargaining begins. (laughs) Except that it doesn't. Instead, Jephthah simply recounts to the Ammonite king how Israel didn't take the land, God gave it to When they came up out of Egypt, he just gave them the land. And besides, it wasn't the Ammonites' land that he gave them. It was the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites have got no claim over it anyway, whatever way you look at it. And when you read the whole statement, it is a beautiful statement, a beautifully orthodox statement of faith in God, confidence that he is in control. Why don't you take what your God gives you and we'll take what ours has given us? I've not wronged you, but you are doing me wrong by waging war against me. Let the Lord, the judge, decide the dispute this day between the Israelites and the Ammonites. It's a beautifully orthodox statement of faith in God. But the king of Ammon pays no attention. And so in chapter 11, verse 9, the spirit of the Lord comes upon Jephthah. He crosses Gilead and Manasseh, passes through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advances against the Ammonites. He's about to go into battle. It's the biggest battle of his life. And he figures that it wouldn't hurt to just sort of shore things up again, uh, just you know, buy a little bit of extra insurance, really guarantee that God will come through for him. And so he makes a vow. If you give the Ammonites into my hands... Whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I'll sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Jephthah enters battle. The Lord gives the Ammonites into his hands. He devastates 20 towns, and Israel finally subdue Ammon. It's mission accomplished. And so Jephthah, the triumphant warrior, heads home. And chapter 11, verse 34... Who comes running out to meet him with the tambourines? Daddy, 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 daddy. And it's his daughter. His only child. And the mighty warrior who's just defeated an entire nation is brought to his knees. Oh no, my daughter. You have brought me down and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break from total victory to total devastation in the space of a verse. 
the great victor over the child-sacrificing Ammonites, ends up sacrificing his firstborn child to the Lord. And it leaves us with the question of what do you make of that? Did Jephthah do the wrong thing? Or did he actually do the right thing? Does God approve of Jephthah keeping his vow? Or not? Why doesn't he step in and do something? The atheists say, see, this is what the God of the Bible is like. Just read it. He demands people sacrifice their children to him. It's right there. Chapter 11, verse 29. The spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. And in the very next verse, this man who has the spirit of God with him promises to sacrifice whatever comes out of his house. God could have stepped in at any moment in this whole episode. He could have told Jephthah not to do it, but he doesn't. This is just like God commanding Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. God approves of this. In fact, if you read the book of Hebrews, Jephthah is listed there as one of the heroes of the faith. And this is the problem with people who worship gods. Because if your God demands something from you, then there's no level of evil that you won't stoop to. What do you make of that? Is that right? Is that what's going on here? Well, first of all, it's worth asking, what did Jephthah think that he was vowing in the first place? Is he sort of just vowing to sacrifice a sheep or a goat or a cow or something? Is he really sort of vowing to sacrifice a human? It's a little bit ambiguous, isn't it? But coming home from the biggest battle in your life, What do you think is going to be first out of the family front door? The family sheep? I don't think so. I think it's going to be a person, isn't it? I think that's the logical implication. It's not explicit there. But I think we're right to suspect that Jephthah really is promising to sacrifice a human. He needs a big blessing, and a big blessing needs a big sacrifice, doesn't it? But what does God think of that? Does he actually approve of human sacrifice? Well, no. Throughout the Bible, you see God say numerous times that he hates it, that he loathes it with a passion, that Israel are not to do it. They're not to be like the nations around them who sacrifice their firstborn children in the fire. And it would be very strange if God had suddenly turned around and become okay with it. And secondly, we need to ask ourselves, where does this actually come in the book of Judges? Because in Judges, we talked about um, a cycle, but actually it's more than a cycle, it's a downward spiral. We start out with Othniel, who's actually pretty good, and we spiral down until we reach Samson, who is basically a human train wreck. And then you get into the final chapters which are just the stuff of nightmares. So where does Jephthah come in that downward spiral? Is he towards the start, a pretty good guy? Or is he towards the end, a pretty bad guy? He's actually towards the end, isn't he? He's towards the bottom of this spiral. In fact, the whole structure of Judges is pointing us towards the realisation that Jephthah 
is a mess. And thirdly, we've got to read this story carefully. See, Jephthah thinks that he's done a deal with God. But has he? Did you notice how silent God is in this whole episode? Is there anywhere where God says to Jephthah, it's a deal? Is there anywhere where God says to him, no, you made the promise, you've got to go through with it? When did God decide to rescue Israel? Was it after Jephthah made his vow? No, it was back in chapter 10, wasn't it? When he could bear Israel's misery no longer. When did God decide to be with Jephthah? Was it after Jephthah made his vow? No, it was actually the verse before, wasn't it? God was already with Jephthah. He was already with him before the vow was made. He was always planning to rescue Israel. He was always planning to deliver the Ammonites into Jephthah's hands. Jephthah's vow was wicked and completely unnecessary. In fact, the whole point of this story is that God did not demand the sacrifice of Jephthah's daughter. Whatever Jephthah thought was going on, God intended to bless him long before he made any vow. So then why didn't God intervene? Because if you read like Genesis 22, where God tests Abraham and he commands him to go and sacrifice his son Isaac, well, God steps in at the last minute. Just as Abraham is about to plunge the knife into Isaac, God says, stop, don't do it. And he provides a ram to sacrifice instead. The point of that is to show that God does not demand the sacrifice of your only child. Abraham assumes he does. After all, that's what all the other gods do. But our God is not like that. God doesn't take your only child as a sacrifice. He provides the sacrifice himself. So if God steps in with Abraham and Isaac, why doesn't he step in with Jephthah? And I think that's part of the point too. Firstly, it shows how far Israel has fallen. That this is what they think of God. They think he's just like the Baals and the Ashtoreths like the gods of the nations around them. They don't even remember the most fundamental story of Abraham and Isaac, their great ancestor, the forefather of the faith. They don't even remember one of the most fundamental demonstrations of what God is like. That's how bad Israel are. But there's more to it than that. Because if the episode with Abraham and Isaac shows that God will provide the sacrifice, then the episode with Jephthah's daughter points towards the ultimate sacrifice that God will offer. Because did you notice what Jephthah's daughter is like? Is she bad or is she good? She's actually pretty awesome, isn't she? If you read through the whole of Judges, in fact, all the women seem to come out pretty well compared to the blokes that they're contrasted to. And it's no different with Jephthah's daughter. She's not a helpless victim. Her father does offer her up, but she willingly goes. She goes off for two months to mourn and weep with her friends, but she willingly comes back. She doesn't try to bargain with her father. She doesn't try to bargain with God. She knows the Lord and she trusts him to look after her even in death, 
even in the midst of real evil and wickedness. And in doing that, she actually points towards the true sacrifice. The only child of the Father who willingly offered himself to God for our sin. Jephthah's daughter points towards Jesus. He didn't want to die either. He said, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Like Jephthah's daughter, Jesus wept on the mountainsides of Israel as he contemplated his death. But like Jephthah's daughter, Jesus said to his father, Not my will, but yours be done. He willingly offered himself as a sacrifice, dying in our place for our sin. If Jephthah is kind of the antitype of God the Father, then Jephthah's daughter is the prototype of Jesus who willingly goes to his death, trusting that God would rescue him. Why didn't God step in and rescue Jephthah's daughter? Well, because she pointed towards Jesus, who would ultimately rescue her and all of us from this wicked, messed up world. All through these chapters, we see people trying to bargain trying to cut a deal with each other and with God. And with people, it sometimes works. Jephthah and the Gileadites, they manage to strike a deal. Gilead get their warrior, Jephthah gets to be boss. But the bargaining never works with God. He can't be manipulated. He's not manipulated by Israel, and he's not manipulated by Jephthah. And unlike the other gods, he doesn't need to be. The gods of this world, we we might think that they've changed a lot from the times of Baal and the Ashtoreths. And it's true, we don't offer our kids up in the fire to gods anymore in order to be blessed. But the fathers and mothers of Perth sacrifice their kids every day for their careers and their sex lives and their own personal insecurities in the hope that they will get some benefit from it, some kind of blessing. That's what the gods of money and sex and power are like. The gods of this world so hate you that they will take your one and only child. But the true and living God, well, he's the God of John 3.16, isn't he? The God who so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The true and living God doesn't demand that you prove yourself to him. He just asks you to trust him. You can't bargain with God. He already has everything that he wants. And he's already sacrificed something far more precious than even your own child. He sacrificed his child. He offered his one and only son, God the Son, who willingly sacrificed himself for our sin and rose from the dead to pour out the Holy Spirit so that God would be with us forever. The point of Jephthah and this terrible story is that you don't need to bargain with God to get him to bless you. He already can't bear your misery. 
He's already offered a better sacrifice than you could ever offer. And all you need to do is trust him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are not like the other gods who demand so much from us. Thank you that you are a God who has given everything for us to rescue us from our sin. And we pray that you would help us to trust you, to know that you love us, that you care for us, and that you have already done far more than we could ever ask or imagine. In Jesus' name. Amen. Probably got a couple of minutes uh, left, so does anyone want to ask a question about that? Yeah. One question you mentioned is Jeff, by making this vow, Jeff almost certainly was thinking about offering a human sacrifice. Yeah, I suspect so. so yeah, I suspect this as well. Mm-hmm. So, what do you think he would ever be surprised or let down? I think he was hoping it would be someone else. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's my guess. Um, 